Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Stephanie Strickland's 10 Books of Poetry include How the Universe is Made, Poems New and Selected, and Rigging the Changes, a code-generated project for print based on the ancient art of tower bell ringing, fall 2019 counterpath. Her other books include Dragon Logic and The Red Virgin, a poem of Simone Whale. She has also published 11 digital poems, most recently House of Trust with Ian Hatcher, a generative poem in praise of free public libraries and hours of the night, an MP4 PowerPoint poem, Probing Age and Sleep with M.D. Coverley. Strickland's work across print and multiple media is being collected by the David M. Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. You can find her at stephaniestrickland.com. Karen Leona Anderson is the author of the poetry collections Receipt from Milkweed Editions and Punish Honey, Carolina Wren. Her work has most recently appeared in Pleiades, Little Star, Alaska Quarterly, Review, and forgive me if I do this wrong. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read the letters out. Z-Y-Z-Z-Y-V-A. <laughs> Ziziva, right? Ziziva, the best American poetry in other journals and anthologies. Her poems have been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and she is the recipient of a Maryland State Arts Grant. She is an associate professor of English at St. Mary's College of Maryland. Now, Adam Dickinson is the author of four books. His latest book, Anatomic, from Coach House Books, involves the results of chemical and micro microbial testing on his body. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> his work has been nominated for the Governor General's Award for Poetry, the Trillium Book Award for Poetry, and the Raymond Souster Award. He was also a finalist for the CBC Poetry Prize and the K.M. Hunter Artist Award in Literature. He has been featured at festivals such as Poetry International in Rotterdam, Netherlands, and the Oslo International Poetry Festival in Norway. He teaches at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. Kristen George Bagdanov earned her MFA in Poetry from Colorado State University and is currently a PhD candidate in English Literature at UC Davis. Her poems have recently appeared in Boston Review, Colorado Review, Denver Quarterly, Puerto del Sol, and other journals. Her poetry collection, Fossils in the Making, was published in April of 2019 by Black Ocean. Her second book, Dearn? Dyern. I learned something today. Won the 2019 Sunken Garden Prize, Poetry Prize, and was published by Tupelo Press in September of 2019. She is the recipient of fellowships from the Phi Kappa Phi, Lilly Graduate Fellows, and the Vermont, Vermont Studio Center. She is the poetry editor of Ruminate Magazine. You can find her at kristengeorgebagdanoff.com. Last but not least, Amy Catanzano's writing moves between a range of genres and dis disciplines, often with a focus on the intersections of poetry, experimental art, and branches of science such as physics and astronomy. She is the author of three books, including Starlight and Two Million, a neo-scientific novella, recipient of the Noemi Prize Press Book Award in Fiction, and multiversal winner of the Penn USA Literary Award in Poetry, and the POL Prize from Fordham University Press. She is also the author of the chapbook World Lines, a quantum supercomputer poem, and the digital poem Wabicles, or Wabicles? Among other works, she is an associate professor of English and poet in residence at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. She has conducted research for her writing on site with scientific research centers and scientific collaborations, including CERN in Switzerland and on the Dark Energy Survey at the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory in Chile. In 2018, she was the poet in residence at the Simons Simmons Center for Geometry and Physics at Stony Brook University. Are you guys ready? All right. So we're gonna go and order as I read them. So if you can um, 
have a round of applause for Stephanie, please. Ingrid, thank you very much. Is this yours? all your faces too. <laughs> so uh, Paul Salon said, can you all hear me? Yes, okay. <clears throat> there are songs to sing beyond the human. Birds are vanishing from our world, nearly three billion lost since 1970. This one, native to the Americas, is still here from the new world more vivid even than the morpho, more still than the sphinx moth, oar-winged, warlike, you attack and drive off hawks. No pigment, only light split through rigid structures in your barbules into ribbons, crimson, ruby, fire green. Grackles, gouramis, peacocks, scarabs, your foils, none so radiant, so swift, your colors never strut, never shift in display. They are there, are not, and again, and again, not. We are huge. We hang back. We can feel your hum on our horizon, see a furious blur out there in the garden this morning near the vine. Torpid by night, flushed with blue skylight, your heart, the disks of your wings spin, scatter cinders of quickness, burning their fuel not to soar, to stand still over the flower, shaking so little the needle bill and tubular tongue that touch the dark throat of the blossom. So the Americas were new only to colonial invaders, but an actual new world houses this bird, a telepresence installation created by Eduardo Katz. Viewers in the gallery and online see through its eyes into a huge cage, the aviary in which it sits. And both the poem and the installation are called Rara Avis, rare bird. Not the old vicarial holy communion, nor the older surgery, pregnancy, sex. Instead, another newer way to enter each other to share the same telematic coordinates, to share via circuitry and hardware these very surveillance and ambience physical robots and avatars wander. The augmented body invaded hosts ping body, composite, unfragmented, neither all here, not all there, sliding in shifts. The viewer is transported into the aviary and sees from the point of view of the macowl, a telerobotic, tropical, eyes front, so owl, macaw, CCD camera eyes. Voila, space instanter virtual. Connected through the net, as well remote participants share Owl's body, vicariously in and out of the macaw. Other birds in the aviary, flying, real, though for them too, this is negotiated. Locals, remotes, animals, telerobots, for sale. Freeware gets a grayscale, commercial product color. Color feed to multicast frame rates available to still fewer. Profession, older 
than the oldest. Vicarial lure, vampiric pull past skin, body in body. Quantum mechanics, the power behind the throne in electronics and telepresence, says that virtual particles perform constant thought experiments in being and time, exploring continually every possibility. They're not in space-time, but on the edge of it until one, only one of those possibilities matters, becomes matter, us. The same interaction, the same charge in enormous speed, my brother Finn, my virtual, my transient twin seething with energy, some or none or any at all except that one number that makes me real and not him. He's the ghostly, the free loader, the thief exuberant slid in under the bell. And I'll close with a technology poem. It's called Whatever. Used to work in wood, not anymore. Sinter laser in its bath of dust. A bodleian of deep sea ocean cores crashes, cloud kept, gated by some voltage vaulting over servers, ridge to ridge, reckless, bridgeless, ropeless, headlong leap accomplished. No bravado, only zest. Elderness extends antennal trees and very very slowed dock of the bay stutters, ghosts, abortuses, extinctions, python, pearl, ruby, lisp, titanium, kludging glitch attendants make my day, point pixel privilege, analog in D embedded not, it's digital in A cached everywhere, I execute, play, pay, trump geophysics with G-locatives, send ribbon worms extruding into space, tubers to digest text into skin. Snarls of code are catching in my throat, gorilla glass remazing my attention, while the floating turquoise berg is sensing a universe all hung, start tuning in, Whistlers on the line cross hemispheres. Abiotic lives are hard. Some rust, some shine on gargle earth's white cube, black box. Light strings matter forth as columbines. Suppose stability flatlines our brains. Not that we're wrong, but what if we are real? Karu. Old English, care, sorrow, grief, ocean ice sheet, SPF, one million. Ribbons barrel along, not their cross-sections, reclaim, as neo-pagan witches say, difference or degree, a sack of nodes at odds, irreconciled, unconsoled, their cry for justice founded such that each planetarian be held, each sleep corral from silence, its own vibrant tone. Precambrian Heimweh, homesickness, yes, 2,000 ma. Ma means now a million years ago, past snowball earth, past muck, if stopless flood be grail, be gusher, geyser, forcing goal, the ultimo of any universal urge. It's yet no ultimate of mine. I change the locks. I choose an ancient sea. It's uncaused stasis strew, one salt-filled chance to pledge to prequels their lost jubilee, to say we know this needs to be redone.
remade, rethought, redeemed, rehoped, rerun. Thank you very much. Do you, guys rem do you guys remember the order, or should I just? I remember. Okay, great. Because yeah. <laughs> I was second. It was pretty easy for me. Thanks, Stephanie. So I'm Karen Leona Anderson, um, and I'm going to uh, first thank Kristen for organizing this reading and Skylight Books for hosting us, including um, Ingrid and uh, Maddie and David Gonzalez, who's really patient with me on the phone, um, and to say I'm grateful to read with all of you tonight. So I'm going to read three poems, four poems tonight, one um, from each phase, phase of my work, plus one. Um, and I'll start with the most topical poem, given the science of poetry uh, theme of this evening, which is from my per first book, Punish Honey. Um, so in this poem, my dad's a biologist. He's very ashamed of me. No, that's not true. It's OK. He's not that ashamed of me. But he wishes I was a scientist. Um, and I came across this, this um, experiment that people had done in his lab about 15 years ago, um, or like an affiliated lab with his, where they were testing why snakes have forked tongues and trying to figure out what they would do without one of the forks. Um, and it turns out that if you remove one of the forks of a snake's tongue, it can only hunt in a circle because it really needs that side of things to do things. So it's like really miraculous knowledge, um, but kind of a violent way of a violent way of getting there. So I was trying to think about the violence in this, and but also um, how to kind of restore um, agency and action like back into scientific language. So this one's called Still Life with Data. Though data on the page leaves behind the snakes in cages, sheaves of papers, thread worms stilled, I stilled in formaldehyde, the thousand gutted flowers mine, Bedevil the greenhouse floor and raise a stink. The blood cleaned from the organ before it's hung in spirits smears a slide. And the pencil vomits awful numbers, litters the reeking lab. My snake died just a day ago, and still he smells the milk-eyed frustration of hunting for a year in circles with a single tongue. The fork I cut was cut to show that snakes with one are worse than a human with an eye put out. Put out, the eye that's left behind will make the world a whole. Data, the snake's guard tongue can never capture the left side of the world, his world, a stinking little mouse. I waited for the snake, holy rodent. The fork I wiped was wiped from the lab's black table. The data dumped onto the paper, the hunted for answer spat, into the dumpster that I tried to pull it from, was blinded by the waste of reunited halves, the bloom and worm, snake and fork, the whole and hungry mice. Um, so I'm gonna break form a little bit here because I used to live in this neighborhood about 20 years ago. Um, so this next poem from my, my uh, most recent book receipt is just an LA poem. Um, this, this book has, uh, it's called Receipt because the first section is recipes, the second section is about my cash register receipts, and the third, third section just like goes off the rails, like I'm about to do. Um, so this, this poem, I got really interested in the Betty Crocker picture cookbook of 1956 because my mom had it and cooked out of it a bunch, and I discovered this, um, the Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air which was like a radio show in the 40s, it was great, where celebrities would like share their recipes. So this is a little bit kind of a, about that, but it was also about my time living here where I was just kind of on the fringes of TV and film culture and thinking about um, the celebrity resentment, right? Like where there's both desire and resentment in that relationship, or at least there was for me. So, <laughs> so I wanted to kind of, um, you, I use some of the details of that in this poem, even though it's, it's set in the, the 40s. Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air. Beaten by the recipe, I hear the stars, disarmed chatting. They love the same foods as me, 
wondrous colors, lime chiffon, ruby red dressing stuffed with perfection salad. The hours spent out at the kidney-shaped pool, I assume, improve the taste of their pies, but none will say so, I hope, to me on the radio, hot at home. So slow, the directions on how to stay newly wed, marshmallow, movie, coconut, marriage, whipped cream, baby, mayonnaise, baby, the basics. My whitewashed ranch slopped down in the canyon. Flattened and nasty between cakes, between takes, the brown cake falls, and the water table swamps my foundation. I hope they are sad, pan-dowdied and dumped. All the great tips they give, the breadcrumb coat, what little kids eat. But what I like best is myself calling in, like them, a voice costing time. And um, I'll read one other from this book, which is uh, a little more science-y. Um, so the, there are these like recipes and cash register receipts, but that the heroes of this book for me were trash birds. Uh, I, was, I was glad to hear the grackle show up in Stephanie's work. Got some grackles in here. Um, but trash birds are like birds of least concern, the birds that birders aren't very excited to see. And so I have one for the gull uh, that meditates a little on um, the idea of gulling someone, right, is to deceive someone. So thinking about gulls in the intersection of our, our ways of thinking about them and our, also our observations of their um, behaviors in the world that annoy us um, but are interesting. Gull. And fool no one. To mistake stones for your own eggs, which you've worn for ages, then find out they're not yours. To think on all deception as a gift, coming before you're dead. Another false pleasure, yet another lesson. To silver, to slender, to slady back. To most ridic ridiculously cleave to sight and mate. To find divorce selected against. To find your food in every place. Mussels, bread, minnows, clam, fry, the unhinged prophylactic jaw. To learn to catch the fish with the bread, to learn the hell of becoming better at it, dropping your prey from the air, mangling things for the sake of your fledglings, and then for fun, to use the rock against the shell. So in my most recent poems, I'm kind of following that idea of the trash animal or the trash organism um, to its logical conclusion to kind of think about vermin in the world. Um, and the last poem I'll read tonight is uh, about the cave cricket. And I don't know if people know about cave crickets, but they look really crazy. They have super long legs and big heads. They live in basements and garages and they're pretty harmless, but they're also kind of terrifying to people um, because of how odd they look. They don't have a sting or a bite, but they do like congregate. They're, you know, they, their populations get really large. Um, and because they don't have any toxicity to kind of fight back with, their main defense tactic is to throw themselves en masse, like at attackers, <laughs> and hope to startle the attackers. <laughs> You've experienced with this. So that's the a defense tactic, like throw yourself en masse at attackers when you have no other defenses. So I was thinking here about um, like human forms of resistance, just like in Gull, I was thinking about human forms of reproduction and and what you do, you know, for your for your kids. Um, here I was thinking about human forms of resistance and defense in kind of a time of fear. So, cave cricket, belly up, splay legged, bow backed to the things in the dark. My mother will die. My father, my kid, licked with dread. What can I do when you smile at my limp and crawl, my see-through legs rickety and thin? What else is there to do? What else? With no sharp mouth, no poison, no blades or fingers, bullets, think this. Fling myself from under the steps, and there are more of us and more. A rush of sticky legs and heads so strange, so big with pain, so afraid. It looks like fearlessness. Thank you.
thank you very much. Uh, my name is Adam Dickinson, and uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you to the organizers. Um, I'm going to uh, I'll read from a couple of books. Um, my interest recently in poetry uh, has kind of coalesced around the idea of metabolism and the relationship between the global metabolism of energy and capital and how that affects the local metabolism of human and non-human bodies. So I'm interested in thinking about how energy and the production of energy and the circulation of capital in the world enters us in as much as we have chemicals in our body, we have income inequality in our society, we have microbes disturbed by industrial food production, etc. So I'm interested in thinking about metabolism as a form of writing and how as a poet I might be responsive or sensitive to these other forms of writing. So I'm gonna, the first, um, I'll read a little bit from this book, The Polymers, which is about plastics and plasticity. Um, the book combines the discourses, theories, and experimental procedures of the science of plastic materials with the um, language and culture of plastic behavior. So I wanted to think a little bit more broadly about plastic. How might we see evidence of polymeric structures in the world around us? Petrochemicals generate forms of writing, and we see this in the clothes we wear and the furniture we're sitting on. This is how plastic writes our environment. Uh, and so I wanted to look for ways to read this writing um, by looking at cultural formations and uh, social practices, for examples of repetition, iteration, accumulation of various sorts. So I did research on lineups. I stood in lines for long periods of time. I um, I you know, looked at examples of um, where things gather or accumulate. Uh, I was interested in conspiracy theories and hoaxes and things that kind of accumulate and, and collect on themselves. Um, the book is divided into seven sections, each uh, of those seven sections for the seven principal synthetic resins. If you, you know, turn over your water bottle, you'll see a little triangle and there's always a number between one and seven in there, which indicates the particular resin that that material is made from. Um, Polyester number is number one, two and four, polyethylene, polyvinyl chloride is number three, number five, polypropylene, number six, polystyrene, number seven is other, which is a giant category. Uh, what I did for that in the book, and I won't read this now, but if you want, you can, you can look at it later. There's a lot of images in the book, but I um, invented some plastic molecules. I worked with a chemist because I wanted to see if I could locate the plastic heart of some culturally influential texts that themselves behave like polymers in culture. So I looked at famous or infamous texts through history and through various procedures that you can read about in the book if you, uh, it's part of these little essays in here. I translated textual information into atomic information to generate imaginary plastics. They're, they um, they could be real, they're imagined, but they could be real and I worked with the chemists because I wanted to uh, investigate their properties and see what they, uh, what they could behave like if they were real. Anyway, I, uh, you, can, you can check that out later if you like, but I'll read you an example from the book. Um, I live in Canada near Niagara Falls, which is a major tourist attraction, as you know, and um, this particular poem comes from my excursions through um, parking lots, looking at license plates and uh, collecting uh, slogans from license plates, which strike me as a kind of adjectival tourism. All these slogans accumulating as a kind of polymeric narrative of the virtues of a whole bunch of places. So again, I was thinking of plastics more broadly here, thinking of plastics in a cultural sense. So I'll read this poem. Perhaps you can recognize your, um, uh, yeah, this poem is made up of the slogans for all 50 US states. Uh, so perhaps you recognize your own state here for those of you from outside of California or in California. It's called Hearsay. Rumor has it, the out-of-towners drove straight up through the heart of Dixie, then north to the future, to the Grand Canyon in its natural state. The golden constitution claims to be the first to celebrate and discover sunshine. All of this makes a Pacific wonderland of aloha, peach to the famous potatoes in their amber waves of grain and big sky dairy land. Given the state of corn, the unbridled spirit is a sportsman's paradise of 10,000 lakes lost in flight over wheat, where iodine is the empire of Native America. It's been said in the land of Lincoln that you've got a friend in beef. The flute player sounds good to me in vacation land while I drive carefully through Great Lakes splendor, buoyed by hospitality that means show me the silver statutes already glistening in enchanted gardens of democratic keystones. The greatest snow on earth is a wild and wonderful lone star, stating in full color 
before the ocean, the green mountains and the evergreens, that the great face of the birthplace of aviation lives free or dies, while cars mate methodically in lots according to mud-flapped theories illustrated with unrinsed plates. And I'll read a couple of poems from this book called Anatomic, um, which extends my interest in chemistry and poetry. Uh, for this book, I tested my body for chemicals and microbes. I wanted to look at the way the outside writes the inside. So I looked into my blood, my urine, and my poop, and I saw the Anthropocene staring back at me, and I wrote about what I found. Uh, it was a horrifying journey in many ways. <laughs> Uh, this kind of scrutiny, the kind of anxiety that I developed thinking about these chemicals. I mean, I should say what's inside me is inside you too. There are demographic differences. I can talk about this later if you're interested. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, the chemicals uh, are in all of us. Uh, and the microbial communities, this is an emerging science, but um, uh, of course we are overwritten by microbes in our environment. And so I was interested in thinking about the kinds of evolutionary, industrial, military histories, agricultural histories, uh, biological histories of these chemicals and microbes and how they got inside me ultimately. So the poem, the book is structured like a hormone. Um, and in this hormonal stream, so there's a long poem in sections called Hormone that runs through it. And in these ho this hormonal stream float these chemical and microbial poems with epigraphs that indicate the particular level of a chemical in my blood or urine or the presence of a microbe on or in my body. It's really an attempt to kind of think of the endocrine system as a poetics. Hormones in our body f are flying around, sending messages back and forth. How might I, as a writer, think of this as a, as a form of writing and turn it into a form of writing? Uh, and, and these chemicals and microbes are, are active in the endocrine system. They can affect um, our metabolism in this way, uh, in, in potentially harmful ways. So I'll just read a couple poems here. Uh, this first one is for a very pervasive environmental contaminant known quite uh, simply as dioxin. Everybody, I would imagine everyone in this room has dioxin in their body. It's associated with the production of pulp and paper. Uh, it also uh, was associated, well, it's, an her it's a herbicide, it was associated with the production of Agent Orange and used in the Vietnam War. Uh, it was also used rather clumsily for a political assassination attempt in 2004. So that's this very interesting history, actually, this chemical. Uh, I grew up in uh, northern Ontario in Canada near pulp mills, uh, so I, I was sort of interested in thinking about my own relationship to this chemical that I found inside me. Anyway, this, uh, this poem is called Agents Orange, Yellow, and Red. And it's in response to 2378 tetrachlorodibenzodioxin. My serum level is 1.304348 picograms per gram lipid. You are either for chlorine or for the plague. Right now is the cleanest we have ever been. And for this, you must love aerial defoliants or you love communism. Under the bandage of this one industry town closing ranks around staples of forestry and fish, the wound is wide-eyed and headstrong. Through the clearing, freshwater carp blink past the graves of missionaries who introduced them to the new world. Northern rivers are warmed by the paper mill's piss, which, like making the world safe for democracy, slowly leaked into my childhood, yellowing the lipophilic paperbacks of my adipose fat. You are for pulp or for poverty. You respect the Constitution or you stare at the ground lost in bankruptcies for herring gull beaks or blurred embryos in cormorant colonies. Every erected media platform reduces the problem of war to a problem of tint. During the Orange Revolution, Viktor Yushchenko was poisoned by government agents who haywired his food with dioxin. His face flared into pages of acne. You were either for the red or the white blood cells for the tops of trees or the bottoms. And I'll close with, um, with this poem. I had to keep a food diary as part of this work as I was uh, getting microbiologists to help me and you know, they were interested in what I was eating because I was kind of helping them with their research and they were helping me with mine. But this kind of self-scrutiny really contributed to the anxiety that I developed uh, you know, working on this project, which I explore a little bit in the book. Uh, I thought I had a pretty healthy diet, but it turns out I have a very typical Western diet, high fat, high sugar, high salt. Um, so this poem is, is for, uh, about microbes uh, that are affected by high sugar. It's called Mouthfeel, and it's for Bactini Bacteri Bacterium Matsuike, and bacteroides, it's called, uh, mouthfeel. The tongue map is wrong. There are buds down to the commonwealth. 
What was the bliss point of African blood in the table sugars of Europe? Every year, spinach produces a sugar in its leaves comparable to the world's annual output of iron ore. Without hurting the taste, a young child can stand to keep a hand in cold water longer with a sweet mouth. The faster starch converts to Christianity, the quicker each outreach over police radios. Oh, my sweet tooth, my oatmeal raisin, my poison-tipped candy apple cart. Pleasure from food is the air waving goodbye in heat distorted like an inherited empire. In this way, we are closest to people who touch what we eat. Captives of loneliness stare into icing. I know enough about the cherry on top to lick around the sides. Thanks. Thank you all for being here, braving the LA traffic. As someone who has lived in both Orange County and Santa Barbara, I've always tried to avoid LA, but it's, it's actually really lovely being in it in one spot. Uh, so I'm gonna read a couple poems from Dyern, um, which just came out in September. And kind of to jive with the theme tonight, I've selected a couple poems that have to do with thinking about deep time and waste and remediation. Um, and this book itself is very much obsessed with time and waste. So it's a procedural project that I wrote at the rate of one line or segment or sentence per waking hour of the day for about a month. Um, so it's trying to kind of measure consciousness. And because of that, there's a lot of waste in these so-called poems um, because Apparently I'm not super poetic every hour on the hour. Um, I'm trying to work on that. But so there's like um, just overheard bits of conversation, things I think are funny, um, things I've read, and then like lines that maybe sound like poetry. Um, so it's interested in kind of the waste that we try to keep out of the poem and to say it is excessive to the poem. And I kind of think of this in terms of remediation as a process that says we can turn things back to a pure state, but really we're just suppressing waste. Um, so I'll just go ahead and read three, three days from this, this long month here. This is day three. Species barrier also a binding. Small deaths daily keep us close. Method. I divide my desire by the background extinction rate. Antarctic ice shelf Larsen C capped an iceberg the size of Delaware today. This is the first time I've really thought about Delaware. I'm not a good runner, but I do it almost daily. Sometimes I walk if no one is looking. I hate the sound of unmediated breath. Also today, humans formed a human chain off the coast of Florida to save someone from a rip current. The man who started it said he got the idea from watching ants. Surplus populations are often compared to insects, as in they were crawling all over the city. In this case, that was not the case. This is where I tell you nothing is unmediated. I am tired of language as messenger getting shot for not being the thing itself. Humans are also building a clock to measure 10,000 years, the long now. 10,000 is a biblical number. It means too much. It means line between human and God. Not for Frost, who wanted 10,000 apples. Extinction is the death of populations. No intimacy of that last guttural breath. No mass last rites. Pre-petrified bodies a half billion years ago, hot perspiring heaps used skin as binding agent, zone of inclusion. The zone of exclusion around Fukushima is 20 kilometers wide. Soft parts go first. Flesh peats into coal, into engine, into smoke. The center burns red. Everyone is waiting for this poem to align. Roof shingles and a broken window, moss and rust. These are images you might find on iStock when you search for barn or countryside. We produce each other constantly. A sentence is a method of growing toward. If you get caught in a rip current, you should swim parallel to the shore. That is what ants would do. 
A fragment is not as radical as people think. It is nostalgic for its whole, always longing to return. Day 15. I am on the verge of waking. I find an edge inside myself and push. I hold my ache underwater. It stops twitching. Rain relocates the shit at my feet to someone else's street. For instance, runoff chock full of pesticides flows into the ocean and begins a process called eutrophication, well-nourished. Algae get fat off phosphates, then die. Bacteria eat their corpses and use up all the oxygen. From above, dead zones look like oases in an expansive, uninhabitable blue. Everything in the ocean is looking up from below. My mother just texted me to see if I could talk, but I said I was in the middle of something, which I am. Remediation is a process by which exposure to radiation is reduced through the treatment of contaminated soil, groundwater, and surface water. The goal is to return the site to its original state, Edenic aspirations. Each remediation produces more materials that require remediation, zero waste. The terms cleanup, rehabilitation, and restoration are often used in public discussions of remediation. Every good poet needs a pen pal. Please write to me at 1514 F Street, Apartment 3, Sacramento, California, 95814. After Fukushima, quote, we want to return it to a safe state. We promised the local people that we would recover the site and make it a safe ground again, said someone. A common question is, how clean is clean? There are no subtleties and niceties waiting for excavation here. Certain government bodies decide what the acceptable levels of toxicity are for its citizenry. In other words, they establish a permanent ration of collectivized, collective standardized poisoning, said someone. Desserts named after disasters. One, mudslide pie. Two, ice cream blizzard. Three, molten lava cake. Four, fill in the blank. This poem is a physical relation between physical things, fugitive form in a world of hostile data. Who will remediate the mediators? It was actually supposed to be meteors, but I kind of like mediators better. So I'm gonna let my consciousness rewrite that. Okay, and this is last one, day 18. Can I say the F word in front of your daughter? Okay. Read it to us. I, I, wait, it's actually, no, it's not in this poem. I thought I was going to read that one, but I didn't. But I already said, I'm going to say the SH word again. Okay. Okay. 18. Awake without hunger. Awake knowing it will come. The scent of shit disguised by pine. Many have already experienced the apocalypse. They live in the after while others build their houses on the beach. Once or twice in her life, a woman is gutted like a fish. Please do not read between the lines. My heart a cloister the rain cannot reach. Hell no, we won't glow, they said. At a time like this, it is hard to even pleasure oneself. The world, it seems, cannot be said. After we destroyed Hiroshima, the first forms of life to emerge were mushrooms. They feasted on iodine-131, strontium-90, and plutonium-239. This phenomenon can be classed under radio, radio ecology. No rainbow in the sky, the glow of the heavens brought low. This poem is tactical. Each encounter a contamination, which is to say, skin was made impervious by men and modernity. We need help to survive. All the things that cannot live without first being burned to the ground. Scale as symptom of capitalism. Porta poem. This poem might be salvageable. I take what I can and I leave what might give me tetanus. Pick clean the teeth and the hips. Pull out the DNA and IUD. Shape them into something new. I pull an equation from the air. I write what I do not know. Thank you.
Hello, everybody. Um, thank you all for coming, and thanks to Skylight Books. It's great to be here. Uh, so I'm going to read, I think, maybe one poem, um, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe I'll read two. I'm not sure. Um, but the poem is called Spartacles. And a spartacle is a hypothetical particle um, that is theorized in a theory in physics known as supersymmetry. And in supersymmetry, all of the regular particles in matter have a kind of a hypothesized superpartner, this spartacle that um, they're trying to find um, in giant particle accelerators like um, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Uh, but they haven't found them, but they have this very, very elegant um, theoretical model for the possible existence of sparticles. And um, if we find sparticles, if there are in fact these hypothesized um, super partners to all regular matter, um, that would actually explain a lot about other fundamental questions in physics, um, questions that have to do with dark matter and dark energy, the asymmetry of matter and antimatter in the universe and other, other um, major concerns of um, physicists today. So um, I was also like very interested in the word um, sparticles. I just, I hear and sort of see all of these like near sparks in the word sparticle. Um, I had just, I had written um, a digital poem called wavicles, which was, you know, sort of like a sister word. Um, a wavicle is a, is a word describing um, wave particle duality in physics. And um, so sparticles was, was a word that I was always intrigued by and I had been studying um, supersymmetry. Super and um, this past summer, I was at CERN in Switzerland for the second time. Uh, and CERN is, is looking for sparticles. That's one of the things that the particle accelerator is doing. And the, the accelerator is, is basically um, smashing together um, protons at very, very high speeds to recreate um, the conditions of the early universe. And uh, uh, it's doing this um, in a 17-mile in a tunnel underground parts, uh, parts, like under parts of Switzerland and France. Um, so I, I had started this poem before I went there, um, but I decided to, I, I finished it at, at CERN. Um, so I thought I would read it tonight. Sparticles. Manhandling the hypothetical, particles from their n-dimensional droves, I parade myself like the sky parades faint daytime moons made from subatomic particles and possibly their sparticles. The invisible superpartners of matter in supersymmetry that can only be discovered by collisions of proton particles traveling nearly the speed of light in the high energy particle accelerator here at 46.23345.6.057494. The coordinates of my experiment at the machine powered by massive electromagnets and superconducting wires joined to detectors, radiant mandalas of woven metal and hundreds of megawatts used as logical wings. So 
the very first poem I ever wrote um, about the Large Hadron Collider was actually right when it launched in 2008. And it was at a time when people were really contending with both sort of their hopes and their fears for this technology. Um, a lot of people thought that CERN was going to destroy the world with creating mini, bing ba mini big bangs and, and, and little black holes, which um, in a sense they're doing, not destroying the world, but creating those things. Um, but other people, especially scientists and the scientific community, saw CERN as this, this great um, hope for, for um, in a sense, saving the world, a, a, a way of understanding the world that was at that point unfathomable. So I was really interested in kind of like the, like all, like the emotive pull of CERN um, in addition to the science itself. And so I wrote a poem called The Amulet, and it's a short poem. I'll just read it now. Um, and in it, I'm both thinking of, um, of sort of the Large Hadron Collider as an amulet, as a kind of like, like spring of good fortune, but also um, in the, at the same time as poetry, a kind of amulet or a point of protection against it. Because as we know, science is, um, ha has been used and is, you know, for, for great, um, for great knowledge and leads to great discovery, but we also know, right, that it has been used for great destruction. And I think, um, I think that's something that actually poetry is very equipped at mediating. Um, we don't often acknowledge poetry as having legitimate, um, sort of legitimate, uh, um, uh, yeah, as, as, as being able to mediate, to mediate that question, but I, I actually think it, it can. This is the amulet. This is a visible language or a war against people's values. My aim is to become incomprehensible to the machines. The Large Hadron Collider is the first accepted vessel of time. If we could see language, it would be an extracted telepathy. I live in a complex visual environment around my neck with the convergent evolution of eyes of different animals. Physically, I become my meaning. As an observer, you subvert the surface of the book. I am capable of communication like your dream in deep water. Its phosphorescence gives me shape. The expelled cloud of ink shields my private thought. You are no longer reading, but seeing with eyes you have just developed. All of my fixed encounters take place in a 17-mile tunnel underground. Protons collide to make particles that existed just after the Big Bang. We call these mini Big Bangs because we communicate in code. This is our first contribution as new machines. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.